something that's coming. In the next couple of weeks, I'm going to be showing you a kind of a, a virtual walkthrough of, of something we're about to undertake as a church, a building program. Now, if you come here much at all, you know I never, never talk about money. And I'm not really talking about money now. Here's what I'm talking about. We've got to make more room for the needs of our growing church. And did you know that upstairs we have 13,000 feet that's unfinished? And so we're going to go upstairs. I thought about what to call this building fund, and I can't get away from moving on up. It just makes sense because that's what we're doing. We're moving on up. 13,000 feet, it's going to give us five new classrooms. It's going to give us a multimedia audio video uh, studio from which we will reach the world. We'll reach the world. We will. We will. Now, then there's going to be the youth room is going to move upstairs. This fellowship hall right across the way that has been a multifunctional room is going to be officially a fellowship hall with a kitchen. How do you spell relief? Kitchen. And um, then upstairs also a game room. Uh, listen, there'll be an elevator on the east side that'll take you up if you don't want to go up the stairs. Um, and we're about ready to do that. I'm going to show you a virtual walkthrough in just a couple of weeks. And then I'm going to boldly ask you to pray about giving above the tithe and offering and let's knock it out and let's do it. And we're going to do it. Amen. And I can tell you, it's going to allow our church to breathe because we really need to be able to breathe. We're, we've got people meeting in rooms that it's just almost a crime. They're, they're not big enough for them to move. So we need those educational spaces and God's going to do it. God's going to give it to us and we're going to grow and expand. That'll make 52,600 feet finished out. Amen. Now, how many of you know that God wants you as a Christian to be a light to the world and the salt of the earth? You know that? Well, if you're going to be a light, you got to be lit. And if you're going to be a light, you got to stay lit. We've been talking about wood for the fire the last couple of weeks. And I want to read to you out of Genesis 32. And I'm going to talk to you today about something that until last night, Saturday night church, I, I never preached it before. I'm calling it limping into the promises. So let's look at Genesis 32, verse 24. Then Jacob, now I'm going to give the background of this verse when I'm done reading these passages, but let's just jump in to the middle of a powerful story. Then Jacob was left alone and a man, notice capital M, a man wrestled with him until the breaking of day. Now when he saw that he did not prevail against him, he touched the socket of his hip and the socket of Jacob's hip was out of joint as he wrestled with him. And he said, let me go for the day breaks. That's what the man said. Jacob replied, and I want us to all read this together because Jacob is talking to the Lord here. So let's read it together. I will not let you go until you bless me. I pray that prayer all the time right there. That's what you call persevering, stubborn, not going to let go until you answer me prayer. Now, so he said to him, that is the man said to Jacob, what is your name? He said, Jacob. 
And he said, I'm about to give you a name change. Your name shall no longer be called Jacob, but Israel. For you have struggled with God and with men, and you have prevailed. Then Jacob said, well, you asked me my name. Let me return the favor and ask you your name. And he said, that is the Lord said to Jacob, why is it you ask about my name? In other words, forget it. I'm not going to tell you my name. And he blessed Jacob there. So Jacob called the name of the place Peniel, for it means uh, I have seen God face to face and my life is preserved. Just as he crossed over Penuel, the sun rose on him. And how was he walking? And he limped on his hip. Father, we thank you for your word today, and we pray you will bless it. And Lord, help all of us to get a fresh grasp on what it is to walk with you, leaning on the everlasting arms. Now, can you breathe a prayer, church, and say, Lord, speak to me today. I receive your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Turn to your neighbor and tell them God loves you more than you know. Go ahead and preach a little bit. God loves us more than we know. Now, last four weeks, we've been talking about wood for the fire, how to keep the fire lit, and we've been looking at uh, various topics, and here's what we've covered, just to give you a little recap. First, don't let failure stop you. Nothing will quench the fire of God and you and me like failing and not responding to the failure with wisdom. Second, you will find me in Galilee. Sometimes you've got to go back to your roots, back to your beginning, back to your first touch from God, back to that original call, and remember from whence you have come. And the third message was the arrow of God's providence. There is a great peace that comes when we trust the providence, the sovereignty of God over our lives. And then last time, do it now. Don't wait. Obey God now. And that keeps the fire burning. When we walk in obedience... The flame keeps on burning. But now today, I want to talk to you about the patriarch, Jacob. And let me give you a little background. Now, Jacob was one of two twins, Esau and Jacob. When they were born, the Bible tells us very clearly that Esau was born first. And as Esau was being born, it says that Jacob reached out and, and grabbed his heel. And so they named the children right there. And Esau means hairy. Now, I don't mean H-A-R-R-Y, but I mean H-A-I-R-Y. Esau was hairy. We're going to see how hairy in just a little bit, but the kind of hairy you don't want, the kind of hairy you're going to go somewhere and do something about it. The man was hairy. Even as a little baby, it was like, oh. This boy needs to be named Esau, which means Harry. <laughs> Jacob grabbed his heel, and they named Jacob Jacob. Jacob means deceiver, trickster. We might say con man. He who grabs by the heel. That was Jacob. Now, the two names of the boys proved prophetic for most of their life. Esau became a hunter. He loved going out into the woods, loved going out hunting game, and his daddy Isaac loved for him to bring that game home, uh, cook it, and give him fresh venison. He loved Esau's passion, which was to bring him that game. But Jacob was smooth-skinned, the Bible says. So they, though they were twins, they were certainly not identical twins. But they were twins. 
smooth skin, and he loved dwelling in tents. That means that, that Jacob was probably would have been a, a, a real college-type guy, a white-collar kind of guy was Jacob, and, and Esau was blue-collar and kind of rough and tough. And so these two boys grew up. Now, Jacob being the deceiver, he lived true to his name because much of what he got in his early days was because of his deception, because he deceived people. One day, as the two boys grew up, Esau's coming in out of the field. He's been hunting all day. He's starving, and Jacob knew he'd be in this condition, so Jacob is standing there with a bowl of stew. And as Esau walks up, Jacob kind of... What do you think of that, Esau? Oh, that smells good, brother. Let me have some of that. He said, oh, you can have some of this. All I want is your birthright. And for your birthright, I'll give you this bowl of stew. Now, what Esau is being faced with is what we're all faced with, immediate versus delayed gratification. God is almost invariably the God of delayed gratification, teaching us to wait, teaching us to trust him. And in his good time, he gives us according to our requests and fulfills his will. But the devil is invariably one that majors on immediate gratification. Forget the will of God. Forget waiting a long time. I'll give you what you want right now. So Esau said, oh, you can have the birthright. I'll take the stew. And the Bible tells us in Hebrews that he grew to regret that decision big time. He could not believe he did it. It says he looked to get it back with tears, but could not get it back. So Jacob, the deceiver, the trickster, the con man struck. He struck a second time. As time went on, Rebecca, Isaac's wife, Jacob and Esau's mother, heard Isaac say, when Esau comes in from the field today and gives me some game, then I'm going to bless him with the blessing of the firstborn. Well, Rebekah had always showed favoritism to Jacob. She wanted him to get the blessing of the firstborn, so she hatched a scheme. And she said, here's what you do, son. Talking to Jacob, she said, you go out and you get some animal skins and you cover your arms with it and your hands and your neck. And I'm going to go kill a couple of lambs and we're going to get some venison. And you're going to take your dad this venison. And when he says, who are you? You're going to let him feel your arm and your hands. Now, I submit to you, the man, like I said, was hairy. Because if you wrap your arms in animal skin, all that is there is hair. And here's what happened. He came walking in with this venison. He comes into where Isaac is. And now Isaac is blind in his old age. So Isaac says to Jacob, are you Esau? He says, I am Esau. He said, you sound like Jacob. And he said, here, dad. And he held out the animal skin covered arm, the animal skin covered hands. And he felt and said, well, you sound like, you sound like Jacob, but you feel like Esau. Yuck. The kind of guy didn't want to go on the beach. So he said, all right, it's you. I'm going to bless you. And he blessed Jacob, who was deceiving him along with his mother, he blessed him with the blessing of the firstborn. And as soon as he was done and had walked out of the room, here comes Esau with venison. Hey, dad, here's the venison. Now I'm ready for the blessing. And Isaac said, what do you mean? You were just here. And he said, no, I wasn't just here. 
And he said, it was your brother. He deceived me. And Rebecca turned to Jacob and said, run. Run to your uncle Laban's house and stay for a few days until Esau's anger is gone. A few days became 20 years. He went to his uncle Laban's house and in meeting Laban, Laban was his match, more than his match, Laban was a better con man than Jacob, and Laban began to work his deals on Jacob, and Jacob reaped what he had sown. He worked for six years for cattle, and then then he locked eyes with Laban's daughter, Rachel. He said, there's my wife, there's my woman, I'm going to marry her. And he went to Laban and said, can I have Rachel as my wife? Laban said, sure. If you work for me for seven years, I'll give her to you. Well, the Bible says he was so in love with her that that was no big deal to him. So he worked for seven years. And then the wedding time came and then the honeymoon came. And it says, and I just got to trust the Bible here. It says they went into the tent and the next morning when they woke up, behold, it was Leah, another daughter of Laban. And don't ask me to explain that. All I can tell you is he worked for seven years to get Rachel. Laban gave him Leah. That had to have been a very dark tent. <laughs> Surprise! You can imagine. That had to be a very dark tent. So he goes to Laban. He says, what are you doing? I worked for seven years for Rachel. He says, oh, did I forget to tell you that I've got to give you the firstborn first? Yeah, that, that, you did forget to tell me that. That whole seven years. He said, you work for me seven more years, and I'll give you Rachel. He worked seven more years. It adds up to 20 years. After 20 years, he's got <clears throat> Rachel, Leah, children, cattle. He's rich. And God appears to him and says, I want you to go back to the promised land. So he gets all of his goods, his wives and his children and servants and all together, and they begin to head back to the promised land. But he's got a big fear in his mind. The big fear is E-S-A-U, Esau. That's the big fear because Esau was a tough guy, and Esau was furious. And it says in the Bible Esau hated him. So as he draws near the promised land, he's thinking Esau is going to kill me. He's going to wipe me out. He's going to kill my kids. He's going to do something to me. So he started sending gifts ahead of himself, cattle, uh, food, different things to appease the anger of Esau. And guess what? He told Leah, you go on ahead of me. What a man. If there's going to be, if there's going to be crossfire, you're going to take the heat for me. So here goes Leah with the children. He sends Rachel, who he really loved, last. And then the Bible says he's standing there on the other side of the river, and now Jacob is totally alone. He's alone with his thoughts. He's alone with his actions. He's alone with everything that he has done leading up to his life. Now, I want you to home in with me for a minute and just think. The prominent feature of Jacob's character up to this point as the deceiver, the trickster, the con artist, was a strong and firm reliance on himself. 
He trusted Jacob. Jacob leaned on Jacob. Jacob leaned on Jacob's gifts, Jacob's abilities, Jacob's ability with words, his charm. He leaned on himself to get what he wanted. He had not grown up leaning on God. He was a self-sufficient man, a self-made man. He had never really had to rely on God at all. He had leaned on himself using his trickery and his charm to get what he wanted. But now something is happening. He's in this wrestling match with God. Now, I need to let you know that when he encountered this man, as he's alone, a man appears, capital M. This is what we call in theology a Christophany. A Christophany is when... Jesus appeared in the Old Testament before his incarnation. And it happened many, many times in the Old Testament. Paul tells us that the rock that followed the children of Israel as they went through the wilderness was Christ. We read that Gideon experienced a Christophany. The Lord Jesus appeared to him in his pre-incarnate form. This man who began to wrestle with Jacob was a Christophany. It was Jesus wrestling with Jacob. And they're wrestling, and hour after hour passes, and he's, he's wrestling with God. This is, is a defining moment in his life. He's about to cross over a river and back into the promised land, and essentially God is saying, Jacob, if I'm going to perform everything that is in my destiny for you, I'm going to have to change you. I'm going to have to rearrange you. I'm going to have to turn you into a different man. And so they are having this battle. And as they battle, the Bible says that this Christophany, this man, reached out and pulled Jacob's hip out of joint. What happened there was a picture of what must happen with everyone in this room who walks with Jesus and loves him. And it's this. Jacob's self-sufficiency was touched by God so that he would learn to lean on the Lord and no longer on himself. The thigh was considered the pillar of a man's strength. The joint and the hip that God pulled out are the seat of physical force for the wrestler. So essentially what happened here is when the thigh bone was pulled out of joint by God, Jacob became utterly disabled. He, he, he couldn't stand on that one leg anymore. And he had to grab a cane from that moment forward and he walked with a limp because that side of his body, his hip joint, had been pulled out. So at the breaking of day, Jacob finds that this mysterious wrestler had taken from him by one touch all of his might and he can no longer stand alone. And in that condition... He begins learning by experience the practice of soul reliance on one mightier than himself. I'm going to say that again because that's where all of us who love Jesus are. We must learn to lean on one who is mightier than we are. This is the turning point for Jacob and this mysterious drama that took place. And it is very mysterious, but it's what happened. Now, the Bible says that God moved on the writers of the Old Testament and gave us these stories so that we could learn from what they experienced. So what, what do you think God is trying to teach His church 
based on this story of Jacob, let me tell you a few things that I know God is saying here. First, sooner or later, God touches every one of us in our hip. That is, we all come into the kingdom, I did and so did you, with a high level of self-reliance. We had learned to lean on ourselves, our own abilities, and to say the good positive confession thing, whatever I want, I can do it. Whatever I want to achieve, I can get there. I'm confident in myself. I am woman, hear me roar. I am, I am all I need to get where I need to go. And there is this message instilled in us that whatever we want to do, we can accomplish it in our own strength. But the fact is, the things that matter most, we can't do at all. So, well, Pastor Jeff, what can't I do? You can't save yourself. You can't save yourself from your sin. You can't wash your sin away. You cannot bridge the gap between you and God. You cannot cross over that great chasm into the glories of heaven on your own, by yourself, without God's help. You can't defeat sin alone. You can't fellowship with God in the Holy Spirit alone. The most important things, you can't bear fruit alone. Didn't Jesus say, apart from me, you can do nothing? Well, what was he talking about? I can change a flat tire I can go get a college degree. What did he mean? The things that matter most, we can't do without him. Apart from him, we can do nothing. I can't bring forth love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, meekness, kindness, faith. I can't bring the fruit of the Spirit into my life apart from him. But still, we come to the Lord with this sense of, I can do it. And so, over time we begin to realize that we can't walk this walk in our own strength. And our hip of self-reliance is eventually pulled out of joint. It might happen in several scenarios. It might be on the battlefield with a stubborn habit. You know it's wrong. You know God doesn't like it. You know God has told you not to do it. But you can't break that habit no matter how many times you try. It still takes you down. It still defeats you. It still beats you, and you're walking around in condemnation because you can't beat this habit. And finally you say, Lord, I quit. I give up. I give in. I can't do it. And we expect God is going to say, well, then I'm done with you. But here's what he really says. I've been waiting to hear you say that. I've been waiting to hear you say that. Because you're right. You can't do it alone. Only I can break the power of sin. He whom the sun frees is free indeed. You will know the truth, and the truth will make you free. If the sun shall set you free, then you're really free. You might experience this hip being pulled out of joint and, 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 and your sufficiency being switched from yourself to God in the valley of bitter failure. I think of Simon Peter looked at Jesus and said, Lord, I'm not ever going to deny you. I'm, I'm Peter. Who do you think you're talking to? I'm a man. I'll never, ever walk away from you. I will, though all the rest of these sissies do it, I won't do it. But Jesus knew him. And Peter said, I don't know him. I don't know him. Blankety, blankety, blank. I don't know him. And right then and there, his confidence in himself was shattered. And what do we hear from Peter later? that our sufficiency is in him. 
we find a man walking down the street and his shadow heals people because now he's leaning on Jesus and not his own self-strength. We might experience this loss of self-sufficiency in, in a burning, fiery oven of some affliction that we can't seem to fix. I've been told, and I'm going to talk to the people after our service today, but, but I've been told that in this sanctuary today, somebody is here who came to our prayer tent. We've been putting up a prayer tent out here on Saturdays. And the first Saturday we had it out there, a mother and a daughter came in, and she had just been diagnosed with lymphoma cancer. And we prayed for her. Do you, and I'm going to talk to them afterwards. You know they're here today. And she went back to the doctor, and the doctor said, I don't know what happened. There is no more lymphoma. There is no more lymphoma. And that was our prayer tent. Say, Pastor Jeff, do you really believe that? Of course I do, because when we give in, he steps in. When we say, I can't, he says, I can. When we say, I must do, do, do more, he says, no, no, no. It's done, done, done. I can't deal with this in my own ability anymore, Lord. And he says, good, because I can. And greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. And nothing shall be impossible with God. But whatever it may be, whatever does it, whatever causes it, whatever brings us to that place, the hip of our self-reliance is pulled out of joint, and we begin learning how to lean on the Lord. You know, I've learned through the years, walking with the Lord several decades, that it's so much of it just comes down to learning to lean on Him. Just learning to lean on Him. Paul said, I'm crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live, but not I. It is Christ that lives in me. It's all of him. His strength, not mine. His wisdom, not mine. His ability, not mine. It's not that I don't have gifts or abilities, but listen, there are many things we simply can't do unless he empowers us. As the old song says, and we're going to sing this at the end, I'm learning to lean, learning to lean, Learning to lean on Jesus, finding more power than I had ever dreamed, I'm learning to lean on Jesus. Nobody was more self-reliant and self-confident than Paul the Apostle, and he had reason to be. Listen to what he said, kind of bragging on his old credentials. He said, I can list what many might think are impressive credentials. You know my pedigree, a legitimate birth, circumcised on the eighth day, an Israelite from the elite tribe of Benjamin, a strict and devout adherent to God's law, a fiery defender of the purity of my religion, even to the point of persecuting the church, a meticulous observer of everything set down in God's law book. I had it going on until I met Jesus. And once he met Jesus, we do not hear a man confident in his own credentials. As a matter of fact, here's what he said. I count all that stuff behind me as dung for the excellency of the knowledge of Christ Jesus, my Lord. And we find him instead describing an intense personal battle that he's in and then bragging on God's strength in the midst of that battle. I want you to listen to what he wrote. This is totally autobiographical. This is a testimony 
from the Apostle Paul. He said, because of the extravagance of the revelations given to me, and so I wouldn't get a big head. This is out of the Message Bible. So I wouldn't get a big head. I was given the gift of a handicap to keep me in constant touch with my limitations. Have you ever, ever thought to call a handicap a gift? He said, Satan's angel did his best to get me down. What he in fact did was push me to my knees. No danger then of walking around high and mighty and proud and arrogant. At first, I didn't think of it as a gift. I thought of it as a thorn in my flesh. Stick, 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 all day, all night. But I begged God to remove it. And three times I said, please take this away. And then he spoke something to me that became a life message. He said, Paul, my grace is sufficient for you. For my strength is made perfect in your limp, in your weakness. My grace is enough. It's all you need. My strength comes into its own when you are weak. That doesn't happen in any other context but the context of Christianity. Because a mighty one comes to live inside of us who has already decreed, no matter what happens to you, I'm going to make it work together for the good because you love me and are called according to my purpose. Paul was a man who had experienced the end of reliance on his considerable personal abilities. His hip had been pulled out of joint through his many battles, and his reliance was on the Lord. My grace is sufficient. Can you say that with me? My grace is sufficient. For my strength, is made perfect in weakness. Let's try that one more time. I want you to say it with me. His grace is sufficient. It's all I need. His strength comes into its own. In my weakness. Give God praise for that. That is really true. Isn't that a great promise? So if you're weak today... Boy, are you strong. Now, second, I see this, and this is really important. Catch this. A limp is not a limitation. Your limp is not a limitation. I want you to look again at Paul's testimony. Listen to what he said. After hearing those words, my grace is sufficient for you. My strength is made perfect in your weakness. Here's what Paul resolved after he heard it. He said, once I heard that, I quit focusing on the handicap. And I began appreciating, appreciating the gift. He called his limp, his weakness, a gift. It was a case of Christ's strength moving in my weakness. Now I take limitations in stride and with good cheer. Did you catch that? That's why I call him the great attitude king. Listen to what he said. I take limitations in stride and I take them with good cheer. These limitations that cut me down to size, and then he names a few, and most everybody in here knows at least one of these, abuse, accidents, opposition, bad breaks, letdowns, setbacks, disillusionments, discouragements, betrayals. 
Any of those things happening to you? Listen to what Paul said. He said, I just let Christ take over when that happens to me. I've learned to give it to him, give my limp to him, my weakness to him, my adversities to him, and I just let him take over. And then he says, the weaker I get, the stronger I become. The weaker I get, the stronger I become. Good stuff. Paul had the same choice that we do. He could focus on his handicap, or he could focus on the gift of God's grace and respond to it and become stronger in his very weakness. You got a weakness today? We all do. Do you walk with a little bit of a limp? We all do. What are you doing with that limp? Now, I, I know what some of you are saying. You're, you're saying, because of my limp, God can't use me. Pastor Jeff, if I was just more perfect, I, God could use me. But this limp, this weakness, this thing in my life, because of it, God can't use me. Now, if you've said that, I've got a question for you. If not you, then who? Oh, I can answer that, Pastor Jeff. The, probably the person on either side of me. Anybody's better than me. I, and I can name a few who I think should, should do the job, but I can't. It should be them. Let me ask you another question. Have you read your Bible lately? See, why? Because the Bible is filled with people with major limps, and God still used them. Can I give you a few examples? Noah was a drunk. Abraham was too old. Jacob was a liar. Joseph was abused. Moses was a stuttering murderer. Gideon was afraid. Samson was a womanizer. The he-man with the she-weakness? Gideon was afraid. Isaiah preached naked. Jonah ran from God. Job went bankrupt. Lazarus was dead. <laughs> yeah, think about it. <laughs> Rahab was a prostitute. Leah was homely. Naomi was bitter. Martha was a worrywart. Peter denied Christ, and Paul was a murderer, and God reached down to every one of them and turned their limp into a power because their limp opened the door to the power of God. Come on, church, praise Him better than that. God can use you. Say with me, God can use me. All those people walked with a limp. Their limp was not their limitation. They didn't let it become that. It was a door that made way for God's power. He turned their weakness into strength. Now, let me give you a fact of life. Your future in God depends on your ability to walk with a limp. We're all like this. Amen? Matter of fact, I don't trust anybody that doesn't walk with a limp. If you're still Jacob, I'll let you go through your stuff until you've wrestled with God and decided that you're Israel. Because Israel walks with a limp. Jacob will cheat you, deceive you, lie to you, con you. But Israel will always say, not me, God. Not mine, His. I am what I am by the grace of God. 
Don't let your limp cause you to quit. Now I'm going to close with one last thing. Real important here. Jacob left a limping legacy. Now when I say that, I don't mean a weak legacy. I don't mean a, 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 a faltering or tottering legacy. What I mean is he left a strong legacy because he learned to lean on God. Listen to what the Bible says about Jacob's last day on earth. Hebrews eleven twenty one. By faith, Jacob, when he was dying, blessed each of the sons of Joseph and worshipped, leaning on the top of his staff. He said, I'm dying today. Joseph, go get your boys. Go get all of my grandchildren. Bring them to me. And it says, when they gathered around this mighty man who was Jacob and then became Israel, prince with God, it says, Jacob blessed them. Now, folks, let me tell you something. We will all one day, if Jesus doesn't return in our lifetime, we will all one day die. How will you and I be remembered? Because we're all going to leave a legacy. I have presided over many, many funerals in my life. And I'm going to tell you, those people are either sitting out there weeping and crying because somebody precious and dear to them has gone on, and that's what happens in most of the cases. But I've been there when there were very few tears because the legacy that was left was not a good one. Let me tell you something. I've seen them come up the casket and begin to name things that person did, the legacy they left, the memories they have. The memory of the just is blessed. Now, Jacob left a legacy of blessing. He blessed his grandchildren. Second, he left a legacy of worship. Did you hear what it said? It said he, he reached out dying and said, I bless you. And while he was doing that, he worshipped leaning. He worshipped leaning. He said, oh God, I'm worshipping you. You've led me all of my life. You've brought me to this place. I'm surrounded by these beautiful grandchildren. I am one of the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. We are his descendants. He said, I bless my children and I worship you. But, but what I want us to really see is even in his dying, he's leaning. Leaning on the top of his staff. A picture of a man who had leaned ever since wrestling with Christ. I can hear the grandkids. What was your granddaddy like? Oh, he blessed us. And he was a worshiper, and he had learned to lean. If I can leave that, I lived well. Can we stand together? And I'm going to ask there to be as little movement as possible, unless it's this way in just a moment. Whatever you're going through today, God is there to teach you to lean. Every affliction, every trial, everything you're experiencing, God will use it for a divine transfer. I, I am not going to lean on me, Lord. I can't do this. I'm leaning on you. And I want to pray for us today. 
And I want to pray that God, instead of us seeing our weaknesses as a negative, we see them as a gift where his power can be manifested. Can we lift our hands to him today? I want you to say with me, Lord Jesus, I give you my weakness, my limp, the places and the times when I can't do it. I receive your word today that I would learn to lean on Jesus. Take my weakness, Lord, and make it my greatest strength. In the name of Jesus. Now with your heads bowed for just a moment. The Lord directed me to do something for this weekend. I'm going to go ahead and say what he put on my heart. Some of you need a church home. You've been visiting. You've been going here, going there, dropping in here, dropping in there, and wondering, where does God want me to be? And you're really praying. And you know that God wants you to have a home. Let me quote a verse to you. Those that are planted in the house of the Lord will flourish in the courts of our God. Notice it didn't say those that visit the house of the Lord, but those that are planted in the house of the Lord.